Welcome to Work and Play, the award-winning podcast of Kinsanji Brooks Smith & Profit, where we discuss employment news and provide practical insights and tips that you can use at your company or in your practice. I'm your host, Susan Basford-Wilson. With me is my co-host, Sherry Silverman. Sherry, it is a new year. And despite your skepticism, I have a feeling that 2021 has a lot of wonderful things in store for us. That said, today's episode is not all about the new laws and regs that we can anticipate in the new year. No, Susan, I think we already met our quota for speculation for the next few weeks, though I want to say as of the time we're recording this episode, the EEOC has issued its vaccinations guidance. So if you haven't seen it, go check that out on Constangi.com. Anyway, while there will be many opportunities to address the many new laws and regulations in store for employers this new year, for now, I thought it would be fun to do something a little different, which we might have alluded to in a previous episode. Is it Shariokey? Please say it's Shariokey. <laughs> I, I, no, it's not that. Sorry. I was thinking more along the lines of how sometimes legal strategy can really be more like an art than a science. While some laws are pretty cut and dry, in practice, reasonable minds can differ on many issues in the area of employment law. Ooh, so can we make this like a battle of the hosts? Susan versus Sherry. Reasonable minds can differ. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, maybe not that adversarial, but I thought it would be an interesting and useful discussion. Infotaining, if you will. <laughs> you know, you and I have a lot in common. I mean, well, maybe not our favorite TV shows, but we I know we share the same opinion on many things. That said, I'd venture to say we might have a different take on some traditional best practices in various areas of employment law. This is going to be good. Where do you want to start, Sherry? Well, let me start with the one that actually gave me the idea to pick this topic for today's episode. I was at an employment law seminar, and one of my colleagues was discussing sexual harassment policies and how you should identify at least two people an employee can report to if they experience or observe workplace harassment. Well, I definitely agree with that advice, just in case the identified person is the harasser, if, if nothing else. Absolutely. But she got a question from someone in the audience about whether you should include a frontline supervisor as one of the appropriate employees who can receive a report of harassment. She said that you should not because you can't trust supervisors to properly handle harassment complaints and escalate them as needed. Instead, you should just identify HR and upper-level managers. Hmm. Interesting perspective. I'll admit that not all supervisors are as well-trained as we would like them to be on harassment in the workplace, particularly in industries with a high turnover. So I can see where she's coming from. However, I'd like to think that companies routinely train supervisors on what harassment and discrimination looks like, what not to do, and what to do if they hear a complaint, because if not, a company could really open itself up for some liability. I agree. Further, practically speaking, a frontline manager might be and often is the first person to hear about a complaint, even if they're not someone who is specifically identified in the handbook. Um, further, another public service announcement, annual harassment training for every employee is actually required by law in certain jurisdictions, like 
Illinois, for example, which rolled out mandatory sexual harassment training for all employees this year. Listeners, call me if you want to discuss your Illinois training compliance. I I have thoughts. Yeah, good idea. Also, some employees might not want to run to HR or a higher level manager to address something that might be inappropriate in the workplace, either because they feel it doesn't rise to the level of harassment or they just aren't comfortable having those conversations with people they don't know as well. So I have to say that I might not agree with my colleague on this one, but it's it's definitely an area where reasonable minds can differ. That's a good one. Okay, I have one for you. Progressive discipline, a.k.a. corrective action. Many companies have policies that follow a fairly rigid system for disciplining employees. There's no one standard formula, but most often I see something that starts with a verbal warning, which is followed by a written warning, then a final written warning, perhaps with suspension, followed by termination. Some employers have a period of time where one step in this progressive discipline scheme will fall off if an employee hasn't been written up for X period of time. Others will keep, you know, all the steps on file forever. I've also seen different policies that address whether you have to commit the same type of infraction, like an attendance issue, in order to get to the next step of discipline. Yes, I've seen all of those varieties and more. I've also seen very loose policies that simply state you may be disciplined up to and including termination for a variety of different things without having any set number of infractions. So in your humble opinion, what's the best practice? I like to see a system where the employee has a fair warning about what is expected and then has a chance to fix problematic behavior before he or she receives significant discipline, like a final warning or termination. So in my ideal world, that means I want employees to know about the company's policies and expectations through training and and whatnot, and then get some sort of initial warning or reminder about it. However, there has to be some common sense and, and practicality mixed in here. There are some things that every employee knows are required that I don't feel the need um, to tell companies they need to remind their employees about. Things like wearing pants or something on your lower half or not sleeping on the job. Um, I think employees have a grasp on those subjects. (laughs) You you would think. They're (laughs) all... (laughs) stories aside this year, right? But there are also other violations that are so severe that they warrant immediate termination, things like violence, assault, or the like. So I think your policy and your practice need to build that in as well. What about you, Sherry? You know, I don't feel strongly that there's a right or a wrong way, but I do think it's important for employers to maintain flexibility and make it clear that even one incident can give rise to termination. I also believe that whatever method you choose, the employer needs to be consistent. All too often, I see personnel files that have like three written warnings when they should have been followed by termination or someone missed a step in the progressive discipline. It actually happened in a jury trial where the plaintiff's attorney projected the company's policy uh, big uh, in front of the jury and tried to show how the company didn't follow it to a T. Oh, that's painful. 
Yeah, it was for a hot minute, but we saw it coming, prepared for it, and we cleaned it up nicely and redirect and went on to get a defense verdict at the end of trial. But still, it was one of those things that the client would like to have avoided. I'm sure. Okay. I have a question for you, and I'm sure that if you ask five different lawyers, you'll get five different answers. So you're saying whatever I say, it's going to be the right answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. So here's my question. What is the best legal TV show of all time? Ooh, good one. Uh, There have been so many over the years, but I'm going to go with the classic Law & Order. Oh, yeah, truly a classic. But here's another example of where reasonable minds can differ. Right now, I would say my favorite is Bull, though you can't go wrong with, you know, Matlock, an oldie, but a goodie. However, I have to admit, I don't watch a lot of legal TV because shows get it wrong and it bugs me. I have yet to stand up in court and simply say, I object, sit down and and have that get me anywhere. Yeah, I know. It can kind of make you cringe. Um, So I can't say you're wrong either with this. All right, let's move on to another business practice. And we've touched upon this one a little bit in the past as it relates to handbooks, but let's discuss written policies in general. Do you think it's better to have policies out the wazoo or do you think the less is more approach is the way to go? Well, you and I have definitely shared our opinion that the general employee handbook probably should not be 200 plus pages long. Again, this is for your basic handbook that addresses EEO laws, your FMLA policy, timekeeping requirements, stuff like that. There are certainly things that you need to have in your handbook, but it it does not need to cover everything and it shouldn't be a novel. No one is going to read it if it is. Completely agree. But what about policies outside the handbook or even policies in the handbook in general? You know, I think this part depends quite a bit on your industry. For example, if you're in the baking, baking, sorry, banking industry or in medical care, you're probably going to have more internal procedures and operating rules than some other industries. However, my rule of thumb is to think about what is legally required because I'm a big fan of doing what is required (laughs) by the law. And then what you will actually use. Policies that exist for the sake of having policies don't do anyone any favors. I think we're on the same page here. And of course, there is no one-size-fits-all answer on this. Every organization is different. I work with several growing companies who have a startup mindset, and they are adamantly against having many policies. And I'm actually constantly urging them to create more paper. (laughs) But personally, I think if you get to the point where you feel like you have to write a policy telling employees to wash their hands after they've gone to the restroom, it's time to put the pen down. (laughs) Okay. While I totally agree with the point you're making here, I think you picked a bad example because, you know, 2020 and all kinds of organizations, including but not limited to PBS Kids, have provided and posted instructions so that everyone knows how to properly wash their hands. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Touche. And a great example. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of funny that I said that, but you get the point. You you don't need a policy for every single little thing. Agreed. Um, 
I say reasonable minds do agree on this one, though speaking of new and exciting things from 2020, what about working from home? We've talked about this before, and it was obviously a necessity for many employers as the result of COVID-19, and some companies appear to have taken to it better than others. I have a number of clients who have decided they love it. They are going to allow many positions to work remotely from now on because it is working for them and and the employees like it as well. On the other hand, it obviously doesn't work for every company and every position. So teleworking, is it great or grim? Well, I've already shared my affinity for yoga pants. So I admit, I definitely appreciate many of the work from home benefits. That said, uh, add in the occasional barking dog, spotty Wi-Fi, questionable Zoom backgrounds, and numerous distractions, it's not for everyone. Not to mention the legal implications of remote work, which we discussed in an earlier episode. So I'll say that it will depend on the company and the industry, of course. Have I already mentioned that I was having a Teams conference with one of our colleagues a month or two ago when my seven-year-old figured out how to pick the lock on my home office door and came in to join the meeting for an impromptu dance party? Um, Yes, she thought it was hilarious, but I was less than amused. (laughs) I think she should um, invite your seven-year-old to every Teams conference. That'll liven it up. Right? All in all, I think this is a classic reasonable minds can differ scenario. If it works for your business and your employees, fantastic. Just make sure that you have appropriate policies in place and that you've thought through some of those challenges we've discussed about working from home, like security for confidential information and the workers' comp implications in your state. Yeah. All right. Here's another one for you. How should a company approach the evils of social media and off-duty conduct? Should employers do something about it? How far are we into this recording? Like 15 minutes or so? We've made it this far before I had to say it depends, but it depends. Let's say you have an employee who is engaging in harassing and hostile conduct on social media, and it's directed toward one of your other employees. You you know what I'm going to say on this. You cannot pretend like you didn't see it or you didn't hear about it. And you as an employer now do need to address it because you know about it and it's going to bleed into your workplace. Okay. What do you say in a situation where an employee is posting about how she's pushing the limits on mask wearing and walking into all sorts of stores without a mask just to get a reaction? What say you then? That the employee is obnoxious? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, but yeah, it gets trickier. On one hand, wh- what's her position with the company? What type of business are we talking about? Is this a preschool teacher that is going to be close to young children who cannot wear masks? Can you imagine if a parent saw that on social media? I can see that as being quite different from a situation where employees are all working remotely and Perhaps they're not customer-facing at all. Right. I actually saw a case with pretty similar facts recently. There was an oncology nurse who posted a TikTok video where she was wearing scrubs and flaunting about how she travels, doesn't wear a mask when she's out, and lets her kids have playdates. Apparently, the nurse has now agreed not to practice until further order 
by the Oregon State Board of Nursing. Um, the hospital said that the nurse's video showed a cavalier disregard for the seriousness of the pandemic and her indifference towards physical distan- distancing and masking outside of work. Needless to say, she's no longer employed at that hospital. You know, she doesn't really sound like the person I want to have around cancer patients with suppressed immune systems. So I see it. Yeah. I mean, you have to think about other employees who are going to be exposed and then, you know, the, the customers or the patients that they're servicing. But all in all, there's a fine line between allowing employees to engage in lawful off-duty conduct and the type of behavior that can impact the employer. These are usually not easy decisions. So calling your favorite employment lawyer is always a good idea when you face them. But I have a softball for you now. What would you say is the most famous quote from a lawyer movie? Oh, Well, while it is a temptation to quote something from Legally Blonde, I am going to go with Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. That is a classic, a really good movie. Um, What's yours? You can't handle the truth. I'm pretty sure I can. We're friends. This is a safe space. (laughs) clearly my Jack Nicholson inflection was failing me. So let me try this one more time. Oh, wait. Okay. I see where you're going. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. (laughs) (laughs) That was pathetic. I think we should probably (laughs) stick to the day job and move right along. However, on the topic of social media, let's say an employer gets a bad review from a current yet disgruntled employee online. On a forum like Glassdoor, the anonymous poster says the company is awful and fails to pay its employees for overtime or some other allegation of of wrongdoing. Should an employer respond to it or ignore it? Well, I'd evaluate the validity of the post to the extent you can. I wouldn't start going through employee emails or pressuring employees to divulge who said it, but... If there's any hint of truth to it, it might warrant an investigation just to make sure. Now, if it's the type of thing that is clearly in violation of Glassdoor's policies and it's absolutely baseless, it might be worth pursuing getting it removed from Glassdoor on the grounds that it violates the website's community guidelines. I've actually had some clients successfully do that in the past, but it definitely doesn't work all the time. Susan, what's your thought on whether the employer should write a written reply to post online for the public to see? It depends. But regardless, keep in mind that whatever you say online is cached forever, and it could potentially be used against you in a court of law. So bear that in mind when you make this type of decision. Always a good rule of thumb. Okay, I have one more for you. And there are legitimate arguments on both sides here. Unlimited PTO, good or bad? Well, my husband's company actually just did this. And come on, who wouldn't want unlimited PTO, right? On its face, I agree. Who wouldn't want unlimited time off? But like everything, there's a catch. For one, there's some definite research showing that employees who are granted unlimited PTO actually end up taking less than they otherwise would under a traditional policy for fear that they'll be seen as abusing the system or being excessive. So it actually ends up having the opposite effect 
of what it was intended to have. Yeah, because that's really not the goal employers have in mind when they roll out a policy like this. Um, There are also some legal issues here as well. In some states like California, um, there are issues with whether and how much PTO an employee should be paid out upon termination. There was a case on this subject last year where a California appeals court ruled that under an employer's unlimited PTO policy, the employee actually accrued vacation days as she worked and she was entitled to be paid for unused days when her employment ended. Yep. At least the court limited the ruling to the facts of that particular case and actually gave some guidance for employers that can help them properly craft an unlimited PTO policy that would not obligate the company to pay for unused leave in that scenario. But obviously, it would be easy to mess this up if you're not familiar with the ruling and the law in the states in which you operate. So, you know, in short, if you're considering this, your heart is in the right place, but the implementation can be tricky. Agreed. Well, I think we're out of time, but that was fun. And happy 2021, Susan. Happy 2021 to you, my friend, and thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Before we sign off, I want to make the typical request of our listeners. As I've said before, we're still a new podcast, and it would be wonderful if those of you listening would follow us, rate us, and especially leave us a written review on iTunes so that other people who are interested in employment law can find us. We hope you tune in in a couple of weeks for the next episode.